Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. My thanks to you as always for joining us on The Richard Krause Show. Now, when I'm not sitting at this radio station or in self-isolation working on a radio show for this station, I can often be found on the set of my television show, Pop Life, which airs every Saturday night at 8.30 p.m. on the CTV News Channel and then again at midnight on CTV. And it's a fun talk show where we have celebrity guests on. Uh, in the past, we've had everyone from Shania Twain to Danny DeVito and on and on and on. And we talk to them, then we convene a panel, we bring three experts and interesting people together, and we talk about something that came up in the interview, a topic that was covered in the main interview. Now, this last season, we've had such fascinating people on that I wanted to take a couple of shows here and share some of those interviews with you on the radio. A little bit later on, we'll meet the number one New York Times bestselling author of Tuesdays with Maury, that's Mitch Albom fascinating guy. But first, my in-depth interview with the culinary legend Lydia Bastianich. She's the television host, she's an author, she's a restaurateur, she stopped by the Pop Life Bar to talk about how growing up on her grandparents' farm affected her relationship with food, how she ended up in New York City working with a soon-to-be extremely famous actor, and what dish every household should know how to make. Here's Lydia. Congratulations on a new season. Thank of you. Your television show. It's 400 shows, at least 400 shows. Four. How do you keep it fresh? Oh, I, I get excited. You know, I think I always have a new message. Yeah. Uh, usually it's based on a book. And so every two years I have a book. Uh, I travel to Italy to kind of really bring them into, into the setting. So uh, I have a good time and I always, there's always new ideas. There's so much in the Italian culture. Yeah. Yeah, some of the recipes look amazing this year. Yeah. That I've seen that they send over a list of them. I'm like, I've never even heard of some ah, of this stuff. That, that. Well, it, the theme is, you know, celebrating like an Italian. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of celebration, celebratory, and this recipe is quite doable and, you know, home friendly. When I was reading about you to get ready to do this interview, though, uh, I was surprised to learn that you're from Yugoslavia and not from Italy. Well, and so <laughs> your grand parents' farm, though, was where you first got your real relationship with food. Well, it's let's back it up a okay. little bit, uh, the story. I am Italian, yeah. and the area, Istria, which is a little peninsula, so, you know, Italy has 20 regions. Mm -hmm. If you look in the northeast, this is the region Friuli, Venezia, Giulia, and that region extended into Istria and part of Dalmatia. But after World War II, Italy was on the losing side, mm -hmm. and uh, it was actually the Paris Treaty. Uh, that decided where the border something right. had to you know be given to the to the winner so mm -hmm. and the newly formed communist Yugoslavia was given Istria and part of the Dalmatia so the area that I was born was then given to the newly formed Yugoslavia right. now uh, that was in 1947 yeah. the war ended in 44 it took two or three years for this treaty to go into effect and uh, here we were you know I was young, under, under a new regime, new culture, uh, uh, new rules, uh, no speaking Italian, yeah. no going to church. So it was a little tough. Yeah, what was that like for your parents, in no speaking Italian? I mean, this must have well, you see, upended whenever, everything. Whenever you're on a border, even today, you know, the, uh, on a borderline case, you do speak more than one language, right. you know, two, three. I speak five languages now. But so, so it's, you have a mother language. With my mother, we spoke Italian, we were Italians, and that's what it was. Yeah. 
But, you know, there were people coming and going, and you kind of understood the other languages. So, uh, you know, when Yugoslavia came in, uh, we just, she, she, my mother was a teacher, mm -hmm. and my father was a mechanic, like a little businessman. He had two little trucks. So they had to really brush up. They made them brush up, you know, especially her being a teacher, elementary school teacher. She needed to teach the new dogma to the teacher, right. to, to the schools, to the, the to students. And it was, it was upsetting. It was, uh, you know, a hard area, hard, hard times, because, uh, you know, we weren't allowed to be who we were. Do you think that your, uh, the way that you have built a career around uh, preaching about the wonders of Italian food and Italy comes from that, from having part of your... Absolutely, absolutely. You know, when you have something that's been taken away, mm -hmm. that's you, you always kind of try to reinforce it. Actually, you know, what my mother did, uh, she put my brother and myself with grandma a little bit outside the city. We right. were we were living, or I was born in the city. Now it's Pula. It was Pola under Italy, uh, and there, of course, in the epicenter, you had all the uh, the politician, the mm -hmm. politics going. But in the town with with grandma, uh, we were a little freer. And there, uh, uh, my grandmother spoke Italian with us. You know, not not people hearing. Right. Took us to church now and then. But also, what happened there? You know, food was scarce, and grandma was responsible for providing the food for the whole family. Mm -hmm. So it was a farm, we had goats, we had chickens, we had rabbit, we had pigs, two pigs every year. We, we did our, our prosciuttos, our sausages, a garden. Uh, you know, you, you had your vegetables, but only saves, saved the beans for the winter, the dried figs for the winter. And so I was brought up in a very food-orientated uh, uh, setting. I mean, all the aromas and all of that. Uh, and, and, you know, food was the center of the existence. You needed to have food. That mm -hmm. was important. Uh, but my parents, after about 10 years, decided it was too tough and they planned going back to Italy. And, but you literally kind of have to escape back to Italy yeah. because they wouldn't allow the whole family. So my mother, my brother, and I went to visit family that we had in Italy, supposedly a sick aunt. And my father escaped, literally escaped about a week after uh, the border. They shot at him, the dogs were after him. He made it to, to Trieste back in Italy. And that's where uh, we kind of reunited. Now you see, as children, you're not told what the family plans are. Yeah, yeah. So when I saw my father, you know, I think it came to me, well, we're not going back. And I think that that moment was very important in my food forming personality, yeah. if you will. And because, you know, I, I, I felt so, so uh, a strange way. I, uh, grandma, I didn't say goodbye to grandma. I didn't say goodbye to my goats, to my right. friends. And food brought me back. And I started cooking the smells, the aromas. That brought me back to that setting and back to Nona Rosa was her name. And so, so food has remained with me as a constant connector and uh, memories and uh, keeping my, my kind of heritage mm -hmm. that was in a way taken away, but not really. I didn't give it up. I yeah. just built on it. <laughs> You're listening to my interview with culinary legend Lydia Bostanich on The Richard Krause Show. So at age 14, you start working at a bakery in Queens. Is that where your love, of, you already had a love of food, but is that where your love of food service came from? Uh, no, not really. I just, uh, uh, you know, loved working. 
uh, with food. Uh, uh, that was an opportunity for me to interact food with actual customers. Right. And it was an opportunity for me to kind of work, because even though I started as a young sales girl, I would go to the back and work with the bakers. I would learn things. And uh, sometimes, you know, if the bakers were gone on Sunday, I would decorate the yeah. cake. And that would be exciting for me. Yeah. Uh, it was a bakery right across the street, Walken's Bakery, Christopher Walken uh, was there. He would come on weekends too. We would work together. We're still friends. All those decades later, wow. Was he... Uh, involved in food or was it just like oh, I've got to go in and work on the weekend? I, I think he was you know he was just the weekend yeah, uh, yeah, helping yeah. his father making money uh, but he's a great cook yeah. he loves to cook uh, so you know I think it, acting was his prime that's right so you started your first restaurant in the early 70s I think mean, 1971 is mm -hmm. that right 71 what, what was it like as a woman running a restaurant in New York at that time? Well, Richard, you know, uh, it was because of my husband. My husband was also an immigrant, the same Italian, and he was in the restaurant business. He was, as we call it, in the front of the house mm -hmm. working as a majority. And he always uh, wanted to open a little place of his own. Yeah. And so I said, okay, uh, I will help you. You know, by then we had one child. In 1971, we opened a 30 seater uh, in the suburbs of yeah. New York. <clears throat> And uh, uh, it was a great success. I was not the chef because I was young and I did not professionally train yet. You know, even right. though I worked in bakeries, I worked in restaurants, but I didn't train. So we hired uh, an Italian American chef and I decided to go in the kitchen, become his sous chef. And for 10 years, uh, I worked in the kitchen with him. Uh, my husband was in the front. It was a small restaurant that grew big and bigger than we had two. And ultimately in the, and uh, after 10 years, we sold those two. Uh, and in 81, we opened Felidia mm -hmm. in New York City, where I became the chef. And it became a, a huge success. It did, because uh, <clears throat> the initial restaurant, we had Italian-American food, because that's what the chef was. Right. That's what the popular food was. But you know, I knew that at home we ate differently. We ate regional Italian food. And so when we opened Felidia, I says, I'm going to do the regions of Italy. And so here I was, a young woman, woman chef, you know, yeah. usually men. This, what kind of Italian food is she cooking? Regional <laughs> Italian food. All of this brought a lot of attention from the press and from the customers. And the food was really good, honest, and made mm -hmm. with love. And did it feel different? I mean, you, you, you say that, but it, it, it seems hard to believe now that uh, in... You know, those days people might not have known what a spaghetti carbonara was or something like that because we're, so, we, we're so familiar with it now. But it was something new then. It wasn't was it? new, you know, like a risotto. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you're talking about uh, polenta, uh, carbonara, yeah. amatriciana, all these were new uh, dishes that very regional, mm -hmm. Italian, but uh, the Italian American cuisine is different. Right. It's, it is based in Italy, in Italian food, Italian flavors, but it was made with the, the, with the ingredients they found. She tells us how Julia Child changed everything for her. Here's Lydia. You know, in the first year, actually, after a few months, uh, Julia Child and James Beard, they yeah. came for dinner once, twice, three. She was mad about the risotto, the mushroom risotto. She wanted to learn how to make it. We, she came over the house. I taught her how to make it. We became friends. She invited me on her show, the Master, uh, uh, Master Chefs yeah, yeah. series. 
And that's how I got my start on television and cooking with television. So one thing leads to another. Was it nerve-wracking when you knew that Julia Child was about to order your risotto? <laughs> it, it was. <laughs> but you know what? When, when you're comfortable with something, you just ease into it. And you do what you do best. Yeah. And it works. <laughs> <laughs> and James Beard, too. I mean, the, yeah. the James yeah, Beard yeah. Award. That must have I got altogether seven James Beard Awards. Wow. Uh, yeah, you know, with Best Restaurants, Best Chefs, a regional chef. And that's a, a tremendous honor because it's, uh, you know, an institution that represents our industry. So to receive still this day, you know, it's very prestigious. And did television change people's perception of you? I had Bobby Flay in here uh, a, a little while ago, and he said that people think that he's a television personality first and a chef second because they see him on television and, and it has right. changed perception. Did that happen with you? Well, television is, is a great venue. You see, when somebody, I think, like, I have a passion of what I do, cook, mm -hmm. but I want to share that passion. Right. I, so maybe at heart, I'm a teacher too. And uh, whether it's through a book or television, it is such a great opportunity for me to connect mm -hmm. with people that maybe wouldn't have an opportunity to come to my restaurant yeah. because they live far or because uh, the economic situation. So for me, I think uh, my television appearance is more like making friends with my viewers. I think that they feel like they're, they're part of my family in a sense. And I make sure that the recipes that I do and the messages that I give are doable by the viewers. Right. Because being a professional chef, you know, you kind of elaborate. Going to a restaurant, you expect a little more than eating just mm -hmm. like at home. And that's what chefs do in restaurants. But in my books and in my series uh, uh, on, on, on television, I am home cook. I am a home cook and I the initial uh, shows were filmed in my house. Yeah, yeah. My whole family comes on. I introduce my family, my mother, who's 99 now, my grandkids and all that. And I think, you know, I, I, I sort of represent that personality for the viewers. They feel that they can connect to Lydia and do her food. I love the shows with your mother. Yeah, thank you, thank it, you. She's fantastic. Thank and, you, and, thank you. And the way that she'll taste the food, and you know that this is something that maybe for yeah. generations, yeah. It, it, that recipes, but in uh, the family. Thank you. And she has a, a comment about it. It's fantastic. Oh yeah, she's she's opinionated. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, I I would come my shows because I'm on public television 20 yeah. years. My shows came to Canada through the public television, U.S. public that would overspill. But 10 years ago, uh, we partnered with Tele Latino, mm -hmm. uh, TLN, and it's been such a tremendous opportunity for me and exposure. 10 years, we are starting our sixth series now with my new Lydia Celebrates America kind of yeah. kind of theme uh, in February, it's gonna come out and we're really looking forward to it. Yeah. What would be the main difference, would you say, between making uh, a dish at home and making it in the restaurant? You say in the restaurant, of course, it's gonna be a little bit more elaborate, but uh, do you think, is it just that restaurant chefs use more salt, typically speaking, they use heavier spices. What would it be? I think that chefs in the restaurant look for unique products, for things that maybe it's difficult for everybody to get at right. home, that they have access, for more intense flavors, yes, you know, like Colatura di Alici, that's a, uh, <clears throat> now it's available all over. Right. Uh, it's the, the kind of, um, like a fish sauce the Chinese have right. and so they that's that's in the restaurant and the cutting 
the manipulation of the presentation yeah. and all of that, that's a restaurant. But home, it's real, simple, straightforward, at least that's what Italian food is. Good prime ingredients, stay seasonal, and make it simple. And I relay that, and I relate also, I think, uh, I relate the, the, the fact of feeling comfortable in the kitchen, mm -hmm. you know? Everybody can cook something. I think the thing that, that changed the way that I cook is learning how to use a knife and learning how to cook things, or cut things so that they're all the same size, so they cook Egg, at They the same cook time. evenly, yeah. exactly. These are all the things that, yeah. you know, you can learn from a professional cook and apply it at home. Absolutely. Now, when you are opening a restaurant, uh, how do you get and train a great staff? Well, uh, you know, it's all about the staff mm -hmm. because, you know, uh, in the smallest of restaurants, you're talking about at least 20, 25 people. Yeah. And it's in selecting and interviewing. And uh, uh, we do a lot now that we have different restaurants. We grow people within our industry, you right. know. Sometimes they come as salad men, then they get online, they pass the cook and so And we train them when we see that potential. Yeah. And you give them an opportunity to grow, and then when you open a new restaurant, you give them the position. Right. Uh, but it's about, uh, you know, in, in, in interviewing, uh, uh, seeing where they worked before, mm. tasting their product, yeah. and then ultimately working with them. And the front of house staff. Uh, it, they're the first point of contact that people have. And if you don't like the host of the restaurant, immediately you oh. have a bad feeling when you come in. So. Uh, that's so important, the front of the house. And they have to kind of uh, understand my, uh, my philosophy, our philosophy, my embracement, how, how I welcome everybody. You know, the elegant, might, the restaurant might be elegant or whatever, but I, I want them to feel comfortable. Yeah. I want them to feel like at home. And I want them to feel free because a restaurant, you know, it's not, you must eat this and this and this. Yeah, yeah we must accommodate even though the recipes are the recipes but you must accommodate the needs of the diner you know gluten is a big element uh, allergic to this is another big element less salt we have to be ready to accommodate and these are things that have only come up really in the last 10 to 15 years i think i worked in restaurants and bars for years and you rarely ever had someone say, oh, I can't have this because I'm allergic to it, or I, gluten was something I had never even heard of when I was working in restaurants. So that's fairly new, I think. It is, and it's great because people are eating out more. Some mm -hmm. people are eating out four or five days a week. Yeah. And hence, you know, they need to have a balanced kind of uh, diet or whatever yeah. their, they, their needs are. And we need to respond as an industry. Now we have another very special guest. You may have read Tuesdays with Maury, his number one New York Times bestselling novel. You may have also read his new book, Finding Chica. This is an incredible book. It's an intimate and heartwarming memoir about the young Haitian orphan whose short life changed his life. It is his most personal story in a career filled with important and touching stories. We talk about the inspiration for Tuesdays with Maury. The book, he says, changed the way he thought about his life and career up until that point, And about how he became involved with the orphanage in Haiti. And of course, about Chica, the little girl who inspired the new book and who taught him about living life. Here's Mitch Album. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. So we know you from the millions of copies of books that you've sold, from the, the columns that you've written over the years, but you started off as a musician. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about uh, what kind of music you played and, and, and if you had dreams of being 
uh, a, a, a real professional musician. Yeah, I think, well, I was a real professional yeah. musician, but the dream part didn't go as far as I wanted it to. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, that's all I really wanted to do. Uh, went through, I really kind of went to college just because I had to, which later it would turn out I met Maury Schwartz and wrote mm -hmm. the book Tuesdays with Maury, so there was a reason to everything. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I bounced around Europe. I, I had a job as a musician in Greece. Uh, I was a piano player and a singer on a luxury island there, and then I uh, came back to New York and did the whole starving New York artist routine, played all the clubs down in Greenwich Village, and basically, you know, sort of had my heart broken by, uh, because I loved music and it was everything to me, but I didn't realize that, you know, just because you dream about something doesn't mean it's a good way to do it, make a living at it. Mm -hmm. And eventually, I sort of was looking for something creative, like music, but that Maybe it was a little more structured too. And I started volunteering at a local newspaper while I was playing music at right. night, because during the day I had time. And eventually, I sort of found myself into writing. And did you take something away? I mean, it's, they're both creative outlets. Uh, clearly, one's not any easier than the other, though. I don't think, in terms of, of finding the easier path. Uh, that's true. But um, in writing, you know, I, I think. If you're, if you're good at it, you have a better chance of somebody finding you and, and right. noticing, especially if you're working in newspapers, you know, whereas in music, you can be brilliant and it just, you don't have the right break and it doesn't come your way. But I will say that there's a lot of similarity to it. I write with a certain rhythm and my wife has noticed that when I sit and write, I do this. And if I stop, it's usually because I've hit a clunk in right. my writing. And I've always been flattered when people have said to me, you know, your books read so fast and I just get right through them. Well, that's because there's a cadence to the sentences. You know, there's a rhythm to when you write like this and you reach mm -hmm. the end as opposed to when you write. Like Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. So We're midway through one of my favorite interviews bodies. from the last oh, season of my television oh, yeah. show, yeah. Pop yeah, yeah, Life. Yeah, yeah. And, and Mitch Album is what, a what New York Times bestselling author well, of Tuesdays with Maury, and he has a new music, book but, uh, out called Finding Chicka, probably his most intimate and heartwarming book yet. Let's hear some more from Mitch Album. Amy Tan, Roy Blunt, Ridley Pearson, Greg Isles, many, many others, and we're terrible, terrible. <laughs> You're listening to my interview with Mitch music, Album, but, uh, author of Finding Chicka. And we've played with Bruce Springsteen, and we played with Darlene Love, and, wow. and, uh, and uh, Warren Zevon. That was Mitch Album. You terrible. can find his book, Finding <laughs> and, uh, Chicka, wherever you case. buy fine books. You make books. them look good. That's, uh, I'd like yeah, to thank all of my guests, <laughs> and, uh, Lydia Bastianich, Mitch Album, but most of all, Thank uh, you for listening. So you, you we'll talk on, again next uh, week. Going to university and meeting Maury. Yeah. Tuesdays with Maury really changed your life and I, I think changed the direction of everything. Tell us a little bit about that because, again, this is a story that has some gaps in it. Yeah. You know, there was a, a long period with, that you weren't in touch with him. Yeah, well, Tuesdays with Maury was an accident like most of the things in my life, like the new book and, the, and that book. In fact, I kind of look at this new book, Finding Chica, as a companion piece to Tuesdays with Maury, but 22 years later, I was a very ambitious type A sports writer uh, working 90 hours a week in television, radio, newspapers. And then all of a sudden, I happened to catch a TV program where my old professor, Maury Schwartz, was on it talking to the host, Ted Koppel, about what it was like to die from Lou Gehrig's disease. And this man who I had been very close with in college, and then because of my ambition, lost touch with, mm -hmm. I found out 16 years later was going to die and didn't have much time left to live. And I called him up thinking it would be a one-time phone call. He kind of guilted me into coming to visit him. I thought it'd be a one-time visit. 
And I ended up going back every Tuesday and every Tuesday and every Tuesday and being just stunned and stopped in my tracks by this 78-year-old man who was dying from this worst type of disease where your body needs to be carried from place to place. And yet he had such an amazing attitude about life and he seemed 10 times happier with his life than I did. And I kind of started wondering what's wrong with the path that I'm yeah. on here. And I was really just going to get educated with him and I ended up writing a book about it to pay his medical bills. And it was a tiny thing, Richard. I mean, nobody expected that book to be anything. It was turned down almost everywhere I went. They said, right? oh, not interested, boring, you're a sports writer, who wants to read something like that? Right. And we found one publisher three weeks before Maury died, and they agreed to do it for the exact amount of money that he needed to pay his medical bills, and which is what I gave him all the money. Then I wrote the book, after he passed away, I wrote the book, and I thought I'd go back to sports writing. And uh, that book, they printed 20,000 copies, and they thought that would be it. I thought I'd have them in the trunk of my car for the yeah, rest yeah. of my life. Yeah, yeah. And it took off, and it really changed my life because I've never written another sports book ever since then. Right. And uh, now my books and my life and everything uh, is sort of a little more oriented about what's really important in life. Right, because I was going to say, it didn't just change your career. That's one thing. Oh, yeah. But it changed your, your life. It changed your totally. outlook. Totally. Well, he was able to teach me what's really important mm -hmm. once you know you're going to die. Right. And nobody really believes they're going to die. We all have it in the back of our head, yeah. but we kind of hope that they're going to invent a pill before and we're going right. to be able to live forever. Freeze my head, do something, Exactly, keep me alive. freeze yeah. my head. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Maury made me think about, well, what if tomorrow right. something like this happened? And am I really happy with what I'm doing? And am I really making any kind of significant difference? And I re-examined everything. And what also happened, Richard, is when you write a book like Tuesdays with Maury, it used to be that people would stop me in airports and say, who's going to win the Super Bowl? And I would say, Patriots, and keep walking. Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, it's like, hey, my mother died of cancer, and we read Tuesdays with Maury together just before she died. Can I tell you about her? Well, you're not going to go, Patriots, and keep walking. Right. You have to stop and listen. And my life, every day since that book came out, is full of those kinds of moments where you have to stop and listen. And the result is you realize people are walking around with a lot of serious things and mm -hmm. sadness and important things and and life is more than just throwing baseballs around and hitting basketball shots and and uh, it took a whole turn on my perspective you're listening to my interview with the number one new york times best-selling author of tuesdays with maury mitch album well the new book finding yeah. chica, chica is a, a a testament to that about how one person can change another right. person's life that seems to be a theme throughout your nonfiction. Uh, it, we, we talk a great deal about, or you talk a great deal about death, we, you talk a great deal about one-on-one -on -one and, and the effects that, that interpersonal relationships can have on right. one or another person. Right. Uh, but this book, the very first page of this book, uh, lets us know the baseline of where the story yeah. is, which is this young girl that, that you tried to nurse back to health uh, didn't make it. Yeah. And it is heart-wrenching. But as I was saying just before the cameras rolled, it's not a sad book. It's a very hopeful book. But, uh, but it is about the, the death of a seven-year-old girl. Right. Well, it's about the life of a seven-year-old girl. Right. And I always feel that I don't write about death. I write mm -hmm. about life. Right. I just get people's attention right. with death. Tuesdays with Moria was a book about life and how to live it. And Finding Chica is the same. Um, by way of background, very quickly, uh, I went to Haiti right after the, or, uh, the earthquake in 2010. 
I ended up taking over an orphanage there, and I've been operating it ever since. I'm there every month. We have 52 children who we raise from start to finish. We don't adopt any kids out. They're educated and they're taken care of. And some are doctors, and now, like you've well, really, on the way to being they're doctors. on their way to yeah. being doctors, but yeah. they're, you, they're, you've had a great deal of success. Here. Yeah, well, all of them are going to be college educated. Mm -hmm. I've got scholarships lined up for all of them, and I'm, we're keeping them safe. And anyone who's been to Haiti and knows how tough a country mm -hmm. that is, second poorest country in the world, you know that anything you can do for the children who are forgotten or abandoned, you do. Chica John was born three days before the earthquake. She survived it when the house she was in collapsed around her and her mother, and somehow they got out unscathed. Two years later, her mother died, and she was brought to us. And for the first couple of years, she was buoyant, bossy, loud. She mm -hmm. told the other kids where to go and who could play with the soccer ball, and she was just funny, bossy Chica. And then at age five, uh, her mouth began to droop and her eye began to droop and we took her to a doctor there and the doctor gave her eye drops mm. and I said it's not eye drops and eventually we had an MRI done down there and it came back with a two-sentence report the child has a mass on her brain and whatever it is there's no one in Haiti who can help her so we scrambled got her a passport brought her to America and figured well American medicine mm -hmm. she'll be fine couple months she'll go back and be with the kids and she never went home we basically adopted her as our daughter. Turns out she had something called DIPG, which is always fatal, very serious brain tumor. And they told us she had four months left to live, and we should just take her back to Haiti and let her play and then die. And I said, no, you don't understand the kids of Haiti, and you don't understand this kid. She's a fighter, and if she'll fight, we'll fight. And that began, Richard, a two-year journey around the world with my wife and little Chica and me. And uh, we were searching for a cure, but what we found was a family, an unlikely family, but a family. Well, you write that you've never felt so alive than when she was in your life. You don't have any other kids. You That's don't right. have uh, children. What was it about her? I mean, we've touched on this, but what was it about her that endeared her to you so? Well, Chica was an extraordinarily endearing kid. Uh, first of all, she butchered the Engl English language in a way because it was her third language. Uh, so she'd be in the back of the car singing, do a deer, a e-male deer, and you say, no, it's female, Chica. What? It's female deer. No, it's my mouth. I can say what I want, you know. Or you'd, you'd say to her, you know, uh, uh, Chica, how many babies do you want when you grow over? One. Why just one? That's all I can carry, you know. And so she had this amazing way of talking. But I think what really endeared us is, is quite frankly, she needed us. Yeah. You know, you're told all of a sudden, you have a child who's going to die in four months. What do you want to do? It's like, what do we want to do? We just brought her up from Haiti. And suddenly, she's yours. And having her sleep at the base of our bed, waking us up in the middle of the night, you know, all the things that kids do when they come into your life. But then with this ticking clock type of thing where you never know how long you have, every moment became so precious. Everything she said became memorable. Mm -hmm. We wanted to take pictures and film everything. And of course, she didn't go to school, so she was with us all the time. Right. And she became the, a daughter that we hadn't had, but, but really she enabled us to become a family. And one of the points I try to make in the book is I don't want it to be a story about me. It's a story for other people. As you said, you know, it's something inspiring for other people, is that there's no wrong way to make a family. Right. It's okay to do it in your late 50s if that's when it happens. It's okay to do it with a child who doesn't look like you, talk like you, come from you. It's still a family. Family are just about the bonds of love that you have. I go through this all the time with our kids in the orphanage. Are they yours or not yours? Right. What do you mean yours? Yeah. We love them. We're theirs. It doesn't matter if they're ours. We're there and we're there for them. 
you say that in each of your books, or that the writing of each of your books, uh, you learn something both in the writing and in the reaction to the books. Uh, what have you learned from the writing and I guess the reaction uh, from this book so far? Well, the reactions, it's pretty early days. Yeah. Uh, but I've been very pleased that people have embraced this book as something for them and they want to pass on to somebody else, especially if they have kids or if they're parents. Because, as I say, I never want to write a book that's just important for me. Mm -hmm. um, in the writing, it was cathartic because it's written in a conversational tone. As you say, you know from the very first page that she died. Mm -hmm. It's on the very first page. But she comes back to me and talks to me. And this is, people have asked me, well, does she really come back to me? I say, well, of course she comes back to me. When I go down and I sit in my office where she used to sit on the ground and play with her crayons and her dolls and interrupt me every five yeah. seconds, <laughs> now I go there and it's an empty space. So I shut my eyes to fill the empty space and I hear her. And so the book is about her talking to me saying, well, why don't you write my story? If you're going to write, why don't you write my story? And why don't you tell me when I came to America? And tell me how I got sick and tell me, you know, a question like one night, which was a true story. We were leaning over her, putting her to bed, and she looked up at my wife and me and she said, how did you find me? And we said, how do we find you? Yeah, how did you find me? And I said, do you mean how did you come to us? And she nodded, but I think she really meant it the way it sounded yeah. because to an orphan, who doesn't remember her mother or where she was from. She knows she wasn't born in the orphanage. She knows she didn't come from my wife. Right. But to her, it felt like she was found. And so the conversation about that was important to capture in the book. And so the conversational tone and the writing was like having another conversation with her after she was gone. And I found it to be very cathartic, if difficult. You're listening to my interview with the number one New York Times bestselling author of Tuesdays with Maury, Mitch Album, on The Richard Krause Show. All the proceeds, or many of the proceeds, all, all the proceeds from this book are going to the orphanage Orphan, in Haiti, right. so that will, I'm sure if it's anywhere near as successful as all your other books, it will ensure that that orphanage thrives for many years to come. Well, that would be a nice legacy for Chica. Yeah. She only lived seven years, but, you know, Maury, I've seen how people teach that book Tuesdays with Maury around the world now. And so in a way, he got to continue teaching even though he's not here anymore. And Chica died at seven, but maybe the story will find its way around the world and she'll live on and she'll be helping her brothers and sisters with the proceeds. One of the, the themes that runs through your work in these books is, is one of empathy and, and sort of opening your heart to the world and to the people that are in it. And, and I wonder if, if it sort of stems back from advice that your parents gave you. And I, I, I read this, and you can tell me whether it's true or not, first of all. And then, so you grew up in, in a suburban kind of surroundings, right. and they said, don't expect your life to finish here. There's a big world out there. Go out and see it. And it sounds like you and your siblings all did that. And I think that travel and getting out in the world and seeing how other people live and seeing that, you know, essentially, no matter where you are in the world, we all want the same stuff. That's right. You know, and, and, and it changes. It changes people. And, and do you think that's maybe the root of, of well, the, the, the empathy that I see? First of all, thank you books? for such research. That's amazing. <laughs> you had to really dig down to find that. And yes, my, my, it was funny because my, my mother especially said, you know, don't stay in this town, get out, see the world. And then when we did and we lived all over the world, then we would come back, she'd say, I hate the fact I told you that because you're never here now anymore, you know. I wish I told you just live down the street so we could see you all the time. But yes, traveling does open your eyes. And then going to an earthquake in a place like Haiti where the average worker earns $2 a day, where water people don't have, electricity goes out every single night in our orphanage, 
you realize that this is one way of living, yeah. but there's whole other ways that people live and they still get through the day. And our kids, they have nothing. All their possessions fit in a little, every kid has a cubby and it fits in their cubby, everything that they own. They don't have Xboxes, they don't have phones, mm -hmm. they don't have computers, they don't, but they are so loving. And they are so, it's real childhood, Richard. You get to see childhood without any television interference right. or internet interference. And that's a blessing. And that goes on in parts of the world that we're not aware of. So I've been blessed to, to travel around and I try to write about this and bring those lessons home. Mitch, thank you so much. My pleasure. Pleasure Richard. to speak thank to you. you. Thank you. That was my interview with Mitch Album. You can buy his book, Finding Chicka, wherever you buy fine books. Now, we just have a couple of minutes left, and I wanted to share with you an excerpt from next week's show. I was lucky enough to recently sit down with Harry Connick Jr. He grew up in New Orleans. He is one of their best-known exports. So I had to talk to him about the earliest musical influences in a city that is filled with music. Here's Harry Connick Jr. You say that one of your earliest memories is standing by a piano or playing a piano when you were three. Right. What do you remember about that? I, I remember sort of in a hazy way kind of walking up to this piano and pressing notes down you know they were about head height yeah, yeah. and I just remember the feeling of hearing something that corresponded to what I was doing with my finger right. and just saying that's the coolest thing <laughs> ever you know and just being fascinated by that and that was the beginning of your interest in music then I guess yeah right? it was and and I think my mother saw that I was fascinated by that so she kind of started dragging me around to see if I could get piano lessons and nobody's really interested in teaching at least they weren't then like a, a you know a three-year-old so it was I guess I was around six when I started really kind of getting into it more yeah. seriously did you have big hands back then no even I still, as a, like a six-year-old you can't really get the yeah, reach I, I couldn't right? I couldn't yeah. I remember when listen to this so when I was nine years old UB Blake and for your viewers who may not remember UB Blake he was a pianist uh, that was born in like 1883 and I met him when he was 96 years old wow. or 98 years old, and I was nine. And he wrote a very famous song called um, I'm Just Wild About Harry. Mm -hmm. And I played that with him. And his hands were abnormally large. Yeah. And he could reach, I mean, they were far bigger than my hands are. And I remember, like, looking at this man's hands thinking, wait, man, if, like, <laughs> if I need hands like that, I'm never going to have hands like that. And so uh, just average size. I remember meeting Dr. John one time and being amazed at his hands because his fingers were so big. I thought, how do you play? Yeah, well, he had kind of kind of paws, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it worked for him. It's, it's, sure it's it amazing. Like, you look at different people's hands, like different trumpet players or saxophone players, you look at their, or, or violinists, yeah. that's what gets me. I see, like, it's like Perlman or somebody who has these giant hands on this very small yeah, instrument. Yeah. Like, how does, <laughs> how is that possible? That was Harry Connick Jr. Tune in next week to hear the whole interview with him right here on The Richard Krause Show. And remember, Pop Life, my talk show, airs every Saturday night at 8.30 on CTV News Channel, midnight on CTV. My thanks to Lydia Bastaniec, Mitch Albom, but most of all, my thanks to you for tuning in. We'll talk again next week.